And of course, Bitcoin is in that sense a massive trigger of inspiration because it gives me so many things that I can tackle. Because at first glance, it's just this, this, this technology, but it touches so many aspects of our existence. <laughs> like it's, uh, it's, it, it, it touches economics, obviously technology, monetary, uh, financial topics, even the philosophy, game theory, uh, then, you know, self-responsibility, uh, then the, the social aspect of what do I do with my no-coiner friends. And th there's so many things you can talk about that, you know, I actually, um, I have almost 200 comics now and I still have lo loads of ideas. So. Hey everybody, this is the High Hash Rate Podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. And this podcast is just two plebs getting high and talking about Bitcoin, life, and the absurdity of the fiat world. Our guests don't necessarily get high with us and you don't have to either. But it helps. Yo, welcome back to High Hash Rate. Today, we have a special guest, uh, Lena, and you may know her from Twitter and the little hodler plushie uh, doll that you might see all over social media and with heads of state and other Bitcoin celebrities. Lena, how you doing? I'm doing great. That's an epic intro. I want that yes. done everywhere now. Um, based on your social media feed it seems like you've been traveling a lot recently um and you're kind of a, a digital nomad so to speak um where what have you been up to the past or this summer what has been the highlights of your traveling uh okay so i've yeah i have traveled a lot i've been to a lot of places and a lot of conferences actually so i just kind of go from conference to conference and because they're all coming back now it's like during the pandemic there was nothing and then we had this one year where they slowly started up and now they're all back and a dozen new conferences and somehow i went to a lot of them which helps me decide where to go so i did go to a lot of places spent a lot of time in europe i went to asia uh, southeast asia back to southeast asia i must say earlier this year just one of my favorite areas to spend time um, and I went to El Salvador and I mean, yeah, not gonna lie. That was my highlight. <laughs> and that was your reasons. first trip to El Salvador? That was my first trip to El Salvador, but not the last. Oh yeah. We've, uh, that's where me and Mike actually met, which is, uh, it's kind of the origin story to high hash rate. Uh, we met on the beach in, uh, El Zante. Uh, did you get to spend time in El Zante or were you kind of traveling around the rest of the country mostly? I did. I did. I went to a lot of places, including Elizante. It was a bad day for surfing, I was told. I saw one guy, actually that was El Junco. I saw one guy surf. He tried very hard. And at the end, I did capture him surf one wave, but they all told me it's a bad day to surf, come back another time. But I don't surf, so it's fine. But yeah, I did go yeah, to I Elizante. I tried to take surfing lessons down there when I was uh, there in February of last year. And I'm not going to lie. I've told this story before. I thought I was going to die. It was like the waves were just <laughs> oh, no. crashing me. I'm like, hey, this is a lot of fun, but I think I need a, a surf instructor who understands that I'm just not ready for <laughs> these big waves. But it was fun. You were going to go surfing, never having surfed before, without an instructor? No, I had an instructor. He just um, kind of threw me to the to the wolves, so to speak. <laughs> and I survived oh, no. barely. But it was a good time. It's one way to teach. Um, yeah. It was a good learning experience. I'll say that much. Um, were, were, were there and, any p particulars it, it, about El Salvador that you 
uh, wanted to highlight or that you, that really stand out? Yeah, let me let me piggyback on that. What was your expectations of El Salvador, and how were those different from when you landed and when you got to see mm. the country? That's a good question. So, I mean, I've been following the news on on El Salvador for a while, and I also don't. I also know you cannot necessarily trust the news on El Salvador. Um, so, I also read a lot of, of of you know reviews and reports from people that. Um, you know, people on the internet and then people on Twitter, obviously a lot of Bitcoiners went and that gave me a pretty good picture, I would say. And I also had some friends on the ground. So my, I, I had certain expectations. If anything, they were um, surpassed massively. So I, I expected it to be a nice country. Um, of, of course, you always have this thought in the back of your head, especially when people tell you, look, you're going there. The country used to be super dangerous. You don't know what it's like now. You're a solo female traveler. Like, how can you just go there? But um, in the end, I went. I felt extremely safe the entire time. So that was not even a concern, not just, not once. Um, what, what really surprised me was how welcoming and hospitable people were. So for example, I had a, I had a contact on the ground. Um, and I just knew her through a friend. So her brother is a friend of mine. And I told him, look, I'm going to El Salvador. Like, can you tell me the best places to go? And he said, yeah, my sister's there. She can tell you. So I contacted her. She had never seen me before. She didn't know me. And I thought she was going to tell me, yeah, you can go to the volcano or something. Um, so I messaged her and she said, yeah, no problem. I'll take you everywhere. So that entire trip, she took me everywhere. And we drove to the, the far west of El Salvador um, to a little vi village called Ataco, uh, which is really beautiful. And she made so much time. She explained everything to me. And through her, I also got a very good idea of the changes, like how life was before versus after the current government. So that was extremely nice. And um, then I was very surprised at the uh, pupusas, which were amazing. Oh, the pupusas are delicious. They can yeah, be dangerous so good. if so they get you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one thing, if you if you just know, like you said, you had a contact. If you just know to plan a little bit ahead of time, you can get in like one or two Telegram groups or a, a, a Twitter DM, and from there you can get a taxi ride or you know somebody that you can pay in Bitcoin to take you just about anywhere, and it's super easy any time of the day. That's one of the things I noticed that was so convenient, and everybody is so welcoming down there, and they're just so happy to have outsiders come and see. You know, it's a beautiful country, and the, and people to come see that and to enjoy, and spend their time there. I I, I love Hotel Machanti in uh, in El Zante. I stay there every time I go. Uh, last time I got, I went there. They gave me a, a hotel T shirt, and they're like, "You're a complimentary uh, uh, manager today, or whatever," because you've sent so many people our way. And it's just, it's a, it's a small and tight community. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think influencer. you need one of these codes that gets yeah, you. Yeah, people are so welcoming. Yeah. No, sorry. No. Yeah. And people are so 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 happy to to have you there. You know, I felt that a lot, and I felt a general happiness that I found very unique. A general optimism, and you see it in a lot of things. You see it just when you walk outside. You see it in the infrastructure that's changing. You see it in how people talk about their country, in how proud they are um, to to share, to have you share in what they they have, which I found really amazing. Very new experience. Um, can you talk about? I mean, you got to meet um, 
the president of El Salvador. Can you talk about that experience and, and what it was like to, to hang out with uh, President Bukele? It was very cool. Uh, <laughs> it was actually the second time we met, which is kind of crazy if I think about it. But we met first in Istanbul two almost two oh. years ago now. Yeah. So that was, sh well, there was this time he came to Istanbul and everybody was like, oh, he's going to orange pill Erdogan. So that was the time that we first met because I had actually um, cold DM'd him before with some request uh, a couple months prior. And obviously he never got back to me, but somehow he must have remembered that I was in Turkey because when he came, he, like, I think it was three months later, he DM'd me back on Twitter and he said, uh, well, you're in Turkey, right? I'm coming and I want a hodler. Can, can I have a hodler? <laughs> and I said, yeah, you can have a hodler. Um, and then, you know, we went on, like we, we joined one of these, these dinner events and then I brought the hodler. So he had one of my very, very first prototypes he got that was back then. Um, and then, so yeah, I, I told him this year, like, I want to come back. I mean, I don't want to come back. I want to come there. Uh, to El yeah. Salvador um, and he said cool do it and I told him I have I have a new hodler I have I have, I have your hodler like, I have you as a hodler so you want <laughs> oh, that's that right. <laughs> <laughs> and he said yeah I want that <laughs> and so yeah that managed to get me inside the presidential offices to take those photos amazing this this little oh, yeah. uh hodler oh. gets you into the the to see the president of uh of el salvador <laughs> it's amazing yeah that was pretty amazing yeah but you know it's kind of his deal he's very it, it, it's, it's who he is right he's very approachable he's not your usual politician yeah uh just to, uh, i noticed oh, sorry works. i was just gonna Go say i mean can this is like this has turned into such a big sort of business and 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 uh, uh, goings on of in, in the Bitcoin space. Um, can you? I, I'm sort of curious about the the evolution of this company that you have and like where you started, how how it um, sort of evolved. What is yeah? What is the genesis story of the first little hodler? Right, the genesis. Which I'm sure you've answered this question many times. But, uh, I have to yeah. say. No, it's all right. It's good for me because I need to practice that story. So the more I tell it, the better I get at it, hopefully. Yeah. But um, no, so that started, originally started around 2020 um, when I was in, in uh, oh no, it was in 2020. It was shortly after the halving. And it was around that time when Bitcoin was 9,000 hovering around there. And we had that over 9,000 meme for months going yeah. on. And it was like the tail end of the bear market and the halving was done. And we knew it was just a matter of time till we cracked 10,000. And from there, you know, the sky's the limit, obviously. Um, so there was this mood and I had this idea for a tweet. But frankly, I, I was never a big fan of doing these sensational tweets. I have a long history of making them just because when I went on Bitcoin Twitter, uh, the first time I looked around, I saw, okay, what do people do here? That's kind of what they, they did. Like these, yeah, these kind of sensational deep tweets, like this is the, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, exactly. I know exactly what you mean. It's kind of cringe now, but it was that was everything that back then. It was everything. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I I used to do this, and I have to say, yeah, it did work, but I didn't quite like it, and also because. Um, when you post slightly controversial things, then obviously what you're going to get back is is the full force of Bitcoin Twitter. And I'm just oh, not yeah. made for that. I'm a very agreeable and person. I like peace and harmony. And so that wasn't really for me. And so whenever I would tweet something, I would actually turn off notifications for half a day just so I could deal with that, which is not very healthy. So I had this idea around that time and then just randomly I thought of making it into a comic. I don't know how that came up. I just thought about it and I made a, a comic with PowerPoint at the time, like stock photos uh, and, and images. It looked so horrible. It's still somewhere, like I think it still like goes around on Reddit somewhere, but I posted that and that became my f- most liked tweet at the time out of the blue like i had never got i think it got four thousand likes or something and I, I had never seen that before it was crazy so that's when i first realized there was something there and over time i did more of that slowly slowly at first because it was not something that i was used to do and making comics that whole thought process hadn't really developed in my mind um, and then i would say about half a year later i made my first real comic with the little hodler where I drew everything myself because I realized, okay, there's something here. Um, I can try and populate that niche more, but at some point I need a character so that I can actually tell the exact story I want. And I needed a very simple character um, because I'm not the biggest like artist out there in terms of artistic skill set, you know, but I can create something that delivers a message. So I made a very simple design for my character and the little hodler pretty much as he is today was that design, was my first attempt, just super basic, um, which in the end turns out to have been very lucky because through that he's extremely versatile. Like you remember him easily, but you can also dress him up and make him into special editions and that. So that, as I say, it it was a natural evolution. I did not like plan this out, And thinking back now, if I had planned out the way the brand would have gone, I don't know if I would have done it. Because if you think about it, um, in our industry, there's mostly men, grown adult men, and something cutesy and fluffy and plush toys. Like, I don't know, nobody would have taken that business plan from me and gone, yeah, that's that's a good idea. That's not very intuitive, (laughs) but but it worked. And it's, it's kind of, you know, you mentioned if I were to make this today, something about the little hodler, similar to Bitcoin itself, it's, it's relatively simple. It's not this, it's not all these bells and whistles. It's not super complex. It's a simple, basic thing that works. And people try to come up with solutions or competitors to Bitcoin. And they add all these, like I said, bells and whistles and all these extra features that really just end up being in the long run, more of a drag than a helpful thing. So like you said, like you have this relatively basic plushie toy and now everybody can design it and add their own flair to it if they want to add a new design and it works really well. I mean, like you said, you've got a Bukele plushie, you've got one for Bitcoin Magazine, you've got just different iterations. And I'm I'm just t- uh, telling Mike, I was like, we need to get a high hash rate uh, plushie out there and people can get that that are fans of 
of high hash rate and the plushie. Um, (laughs) Before you became an entrepreneur, an artist, and a storyteller, in the Bitcoin community anyways, what what kind of was your background? What what was your journey to the point where you're at now? Um, very random and very just like doing whatever came up at the time, honestly. Okay. So I yeah. So I mean to go that far back, I all I kind of knew was when I no actually from like when I was twelve, I was like as soon as I'm allowed to, I'm gonna move move overseas, and that's all I knew. So like my entire school. T- like school years, I was planning to move abroad, which I then did. I, I turned 18, I finished school, and then I moved abroad. I moved to Japan and I lived in Asia for actually the better part of the last 10 years. I've lived in Asia, uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, th- that area. And um, I was working remotely actually the entire time. I was working in marketing, was doing things there. At some point during that, um, during that one bull market in 2017, I got into shitcoins. So I was working on like <laughs> shitcoin projects, as you do, um, as an evangelist and as like whatever name. A blockchain they would give you. enthusiast. A blockchain enthusiast, yeah. <laughs> um, I did that for some time, and I, which is actually, it's actually kind of crazy how I was doing that for almost a year, and I did not have any touching points with Bitcoin at the time. Um, it did not happen until, so for that, I was going to conferences and events and I was doing all the traveling and I would go to these events where, you know, the kind of conference where you have a bunch of people come and they all come to shill each other their coin and nobody's listening to each other. So there's yeah. one guy who's like, oh, I, I have um, I have supply chain coin. It fixes the supply chain. Just- and there's the other one. Oh, that's so nice. My project is weather forecast coin. Um, and it's just a bunch of nothing. And so at some point it just felt like I, I, I could feel that I, like, I was wondering, what am I doing? Like, am I providing any value here? What's the point? And, um, I then got to meet a few Bitcoiners that was in, I think the Philippines. And, um, that was the first time I got, well, the first time I started thinking, and learning about Bitcoin. So they gave me some books. Uh, obviously, uh, the Internet of Money was probably the first one I read. Then like the standard books, the Bitcoin standard among them. And at that point, things shifted, but like hardcore shifted for me. So I started thinking about inflation for the first time properly, not like a German, because um, I'm German and we have, there, there are ways inflation is, teach, is taught in Germany or used to be, it might be different now because we actually have inflation now in Germany. Like it. But back then it was more like, yeah, that's just this thing that happens and you deal with it. Um, hmm. And it's that was wild. the first time I started yeah, thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. We we had Moritz from Spectre on, and he's also from Germany. And it's, it's kind of the contrast because in the United States, everybody's afraid of deflation because of the Great Depression and how terrible it was. So we're always avoiding deflation. And in Germany, it was hyperinflation just a few years before the Great Depression. So it's just everybody is scared of the money collapsing in a different way. In Europe, it's the money becomes, you have a trillion dollars or a trillion marks and it's worth nothing. And here it's, you have, you know, $30 and it can't buy anything because everything, but everything gets so cheap that nobody produces. Um, What is, what, when you started thinking about inflation living in Asia, what is the, what is the monet? What is the monetary systems like 
in the countries that you visited and how do they think about money in your experience? Well, that is a that's a big question because mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, each country deals with it a little differently. Maybe some interesting ones. Um, I mean, maybe a very interesting one is probably Turkey, where I am right okay. now. Okay, yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a big topic here. Obviously, when I first got to Turkey, that was October twenty twenty one, and at the time, the exchange rate was one dollar to nine point three lira. And within a month of me being there, that went to 15 or 16 lira. Um, and we could see people lining up at the gas stations, trying to you know, um, get some gas before the prices go up. Um, and then today, actually I haven't checked in a while, but last I checked it was 27 lira. And that is just the official inflation rate, right? So you have other things going on. So real estate prices are crazy in Istanbul, um, it's like, you, you can't even imagine. Um, and generally prices are just, pr- prices prices are going up, you can feel it. And people are trying to make do with that. So you can see the effects of it in general, in, in over the broader society. So Turkey actually, during the last bull market was the, oh God, don't let me lie, the, sec- the biggest market in Europe for Bitcoin and crypto you have to say it's very crypto heavy lots of altcoins going on here Um, and the second biggest in the world if i'm not mistaken there's millions of users here and you have you have this very interesting setup where the government is not bitcoin friendly and i think we all remember where when erdogan said something about being at war with bitcoin or something like that right um there is a de facto ban on receiving payments in bitcoin so like getting paid for a service or product in bitcoin is banned um does that um does that improve like peer-to-peer use of bitcoin so people are more conscious of avoiding government scrutiny government regulations so they find ways to use bitcoin correctly so to speak and or is it how does that affect are people afraid to use Bitcoin or is it just kind of like, ah, oh, the government won't let me do it. You just have to do it under the table, so to speak. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot going on under the table also on, yeah. on government side. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, I, mean, sure, I have no sure, proof, but I, sure. I mean, um, well, I, I don't know. Right. But uh, Bitcoin is not banned. And so the interesting thing is that you have Bitcoin everywhere. You have billboards, you have ads in the <laughs> cinema, you have massive exchanges here. You have a, like everybody's trading, basically. People trade a lot. So it is huge. You just can't pay for stuff with it. So what people do is they buy Bitcoin or they actually they buy a Tether a lot and then they trade on the exchanges. And that is also a, I would say, a symptom of the wider economy where if your money loses value so, so quickly that and you're not allowed to um, and you, you have trouble like holding even dollars and um, you need to convert to gold or something like that just to people would tell me like i can buy a fridge and that's a store of value like i know that's a joke but people do buy cars as stores of value here so if you're in that kind of mindset then trading and making money quickly becomes very attractive and that's something you see in struggling economies it's similar in the philippines for example i could witness like the mlm culture is huge there so that is something that's 
that I noticed in countries like that. Are you are yeah, you set up in, to are a, you, I just a, want to ask, are you set up in Turkey right now? Like your business? Uh, well, I am I am sitting in oh, Turkey got it, right got it. now, but my, my company is uh, in Malta. Oh, copy, okay. Apparently mm. my company is in Malta. Um, I, I, I have spent like considerable amount of time in Turkey over the last two years. I'm actually about to go traveling again. Um, I was just asking, just yeah. you know, if you're not, if, if you can't accept, uh, my... if you can't accept Bitcoin yeah. for, because you're saying that no one can accept <laughs> Bitcoin. For, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I do. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I couldn't do that. For example. So I was thinking about it. I was thinking of opening my company here, but there was a no go. So this is how you, um, you know, you you scare of businesses, which you know you don't want to do, but they do. Um, you said you're getting ready to travel more often. What? Uh, and you spent a lot of time in Asia. Are you going back to Asia, or are you expanding and and seeing more places that uh, you have not been able to visit yet? Yeah, fun fact. I actually applied for a, a visa in Malaysia because I love Malaysia, Ooh. and I applied a couple months ago. And I spent a lot of time in Malaysia. It's still like when somebody tells me where should I go, I always say go to Kuala Lumpur. But uh, so they have a new visa, which I actually love. And I keep saying this, like smart countries create visas for digital nomads or just for people who work remotely. So they have that. And they are, it's it's kind of like a innovation visa where you can say, I work in blockchain and then you can get the visa. So I did that I said, I work in blockchain. Um, and it's like supposed to be kind of like a Bitcoin friendly thing, but then it turns out the whole Bitcoin thing can, did, did cause some, <laughs> did cause some complications. So that ended up in my application, uh, being delayed and be, still being pending. And then I looked around and then I went to El Salvador and now I'm thinking to go back to El Salvador and just travel that area a little bit, which is what I'm doing end of the month. So. What uh, what kind of compl? So you mentioned like the visa uh, delay. What kind of complications do you run into? Do you ever get into a situation where you're in a country and you're kind of running up on your time and you have to leave, and the place that you plan to go next, you run into a delay or something? Do you have, do you have backup plans and contingency plans for where you're going to go next if something doesn't work out, or do you just kind of go with the flow? Uh, I, I very much go with the flow, <laughs> very, very much go with the flow. So I, I mean, I've had different styles of doing the traveling, like having a base somewhere. You always, I mean, being a full on digital nomad is great in theory, but it comes with issues. Just for example, if you need a bank account, you need insurance, where do you get your mail, that kind of stuff. So being full on 100% digital nomad and I don't live anywhere ever. Um, not even in in terms of address is kind of difficult. So I actually haven't done that. Obviously, I'll always have a residential address somewhere. I have a registered address somewhere, but I have lived without a a place to go back to per se. Um, and then the what I would do is just kind of go around. You know, I mean, I have a German passport, which I know makes it easier. Um, to travel travel worldwide, sure. Um, so I can just kind of see where and, to go next. And you mentioned that you know at the age of twelve, even you were thinking about just getting out and traveling everywhere. Do you what do you think attracted you to this idea that you wanted to see the world? 
That is a very good question. That is such a good question. Um, I think to me, it is traveling. Well, first of all, it broadens your horizon, obviously. It makes you more open to things that happen in the world. And it also makes the world smaller. And mm-hmm. I like, this is a personal preference, but I like being a stranger. I like being somewhere new and I like figuring out what to do, where to go and being open, seeing different cultures. I first did not consciously choose to do that, but I ended up doing more of it. Um, for example, because I was doing the I was doing the shitcoin stuff, I was going to all these conferences all over the world and suddenly I was seeing all these different cultures and I was getting to, for example, I, I had no plans to go to the Philippines, but I actually spent some time there. And I, I, I was shocked at like how nice people were and what a, what a different kind of lifestyle that was. And it taught me so much that at some point it became a kind of second nature. And it, it's, it's interesting how that works because you get used, you can get used to anything, right? So you can get used to a location. So you can get settled and set up in a location. You have your comfort zone and then leaving that place becomes hard because of, well, you have social environment and all that, but also just because you kind of have your routines and all that. But just the same way you can get used to being on the road. And I don't know which is better. I think there's, you know, that's that's a very subjective thing to say. Um, I like both, but I do. So lately I've been feeling like, yeah, I want to go around again. And so that's that's what I'm doing. Can I, can I, so can I just can I, can I pick, piggyback on this just really quick? The, how I'm curious has yeah. the, um, your travels have affected the little hodler and and uh, basically how you know how, how that's evolved as well oh that's also very interesting how do you, <laughs> you experience how do your experience how do your experiences shape the comics and the little hodler that's a better that's a better do question they Thank those. You, yeah <laughs> no oh you guys ask amazing well i always know how to like interrupt um, ideas and like completely make everything very awkward so that's i'm very good at that so anyway derail it yeah i love it (laughs) um very much it's affected everything i do is affected by the things i experience that is an artist thing and that's also just a life thing i think so in 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 everything i do that includes little hodler and that includes other things i do so in my free time i write a lot i i make music and and that's all affected so when i go to a place um, little hodler specific going to turkey gave me a lot of perspective on things like government skepticism um, because I saw that firsthand. Um, whereas I also then saw what's it, what's it like to be in a country where then people tend to be very, well, tend to be questioning their government, but also have to be careful what they say about their government, mm. at least if yeah. they have a big reach. Right? So those things, they kept me busy and they still keep me busy. Um, inflation's a huge one, obviously. But I also see how, um, it, so that, that is one of the most rewarding things for me that I would go places and I would be able to connect with the local communities and I would go to a meetup and they would say, I, yeah, I sent you a comic to my, to, my, to my niece, to my mother, to my grandmother. And then we would, have, we would start a conversation and then through that new opportunities would open up. That is probably the most, I mean, the most intense way that I was affected. Um, 
we talked a little bit earlier about my experience surfing and how uh, traumatic that was, so to speak. <laughs> but we also talk a lot on the show about like jujitsu and these other very difficult tasks, and they're very masculine focused, usually something sports. But there's also, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of, you know, maybe fear or just uncertainty about starting these uh, new endeavors. But also that you can have that same feeling, that same anxiety when it comes to traveling the world, especially traveling the world by yourself at a young age. Did you, when you started to go to these places all over the planet, sometimes by yourself or maybe always by yourself, did you have that stress, that anxiety? Is that something you had to overcome? Did you find some sort of Zen that allowed you to overcome that? Or do you still face it and you just face it head on as you do it? That is another great question. Um, I actually thought about this recently and I thought if I hadn't done it and if I only started traveling now, if for example El Salvador was the first country I ever traveled to, I would be scared out of my mind. I'd be like, oh my god, but the, the foreign ministry of Germany said exercise caution um, and they said their 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 polit their politicians like their their government is run by a dictator, and uh, the media said don't go, and my friends said you're you're alone and you're a woman, I would be scared, I would be so scared, and I probably wouldn't do it, but because back then, which I'm not saying is is great, but I had no idea what I was getting myself into, I just went, I just went, I didn't think about it, and then. I dealt with situations as they came. So I did a lot of stupid things for sure. Um, I'm still doing stupid things probably, but I, I did them, I, I overcame them, and then that became a lesson. And then I became more proficient at traveling, let's say. So I, I lived some time in Manila, for example, which was a massive learning experience for me, because if you say, um, you know, what's it like going to Manila and you Google that, people are going to tell you, oh, like, oh, you're probably going to die there. Like, it's, it's, you're not going to make it out there. So I went there and I actually had like, <laughs> I liked it there. Um, and obviously you have your trade-offs and you have your, um, well, you have your, you have your good and your bad things everywhere you go. You have things that you need to pay attention to. There's cultural differences. There is differences in infrastructure and obviously differences in, in level of development, language and all that. If you live with that, if you if you manage to embrace that, then it's not that it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be that scary, not as scary as the media right. likes to make. Right. And I think similar, you know, it, it's very similar to just the Bitcoin journey in and of itself, where the idea of learning to use Bitcoin to run a node and to self-custody your Bitcoin is scary at first, similar to traveling, similar to surfing. But as you as you go through the process, it's all a, a journey of self-discovery. Once you learn that you have the capabilities, that you have the, um, the know-how to solve these problems, to face these um, hurdles, to just adapt and be flexible and to do the right things and to make the right choices, the more self-confidence you gain, the easier it becomes. And like the, the wider the world becomes to you. And it's just a very exciting journey. And it sounds like some people find it, like I said, through jujitsu, some people find it through a sport, some people find it through traveling. And it sounds like you've probably found some, a lot of 
a lot about yourself and a lot of self-confidence through your ability to travel and to get through any obstacle that might be thrown in your way. It's a very good point because especially for things like self-custody, uh, even just writing down a seed phrase, you can read yourself to exhaustion. And the more you read, the scarier it gets. Scarier. And it's like, yeah, oh my God, no way I do it is going to be perfect. There's always a risk. But what if that this happens? What if that happens? Oh, I shouldn't even do it. Like, I'll just give it to the bank. And then you don't do it. So sometimes it's good to just, sometimes good to just do it. There's a risk in everything. And sometimes the biggest risk is to not do it. So... I mean, so totally. It, yeah. It, it, and it's, yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like that's how you're sort of attacking the world in a way. It's like you um, you approach <laughs> something without knowing what it's going to be, sort of in this innocent way of like, oh, we'll just try it out. And then suddenly you explore, like you become successful in this, in the travels, in the little hodler. It's like you just discover it as you go. A lot of times I fail. No, um, well, as you sh as, right. yeah, as we should, uh, right? We all should. The more you learn about Bitcoin, the more you realize how complex it can be and how many scripts there are and how many ways you can screw up a transaction. But then, you know, you travel the world. There's like you said, there's so many different government um, the ways the governments do things, authoritarian states, free states, different languages. There's always something more to learn. But the other thing you learn along the way is there's always somebody there that will gladly help you that you can make friends with that can help to show you the way there's always somebody who's got a little bit more experience in something than you that you can learn from and it's it's very empowering when you realize and that you, I feel you also like. mentioned that you that's true and it's or, i was going to ask you you mentioned that you make music and i was curious if if you approach if if the approach is the same sort of deal like you're just sort of diving in and then you have explored something that and found a niche in somewhere yeah, although I don't make the music for monetary purposes, right? I make it because it's my passion, has always been. I uh, Yeah, and you could say that because I started because my big brother was playing the keyboard. Like, uh, just, yeah, I think it's called, yeah, we call it keyboard in German. It's probably called keyboard in English. Um, and then I did that too. And then at some point I was like, okay, cool. So this is it. And then I found out you could actually play the piano where you don't just use the right hand, but you use both hands. And I wanted to take classes, couldn't afford it. So just kind of learned it by myself and just went from there. And it's it's a very interesting way with like, how that does things to your brain. And then just, I found it very inspiring. And I found it, it helps me. I don't know, it, it, it helps, but there's there's some chemical processes going on there, right? That I don't know, but it, it helps me and it helped me stay on top of things. And it gave me, it, it gives me something and yeah, so so music is is my way of yeah my way of finding my <laughs> God anything I could say now would sound so cheesy, but it's just a passion for me and it's the similar way that I uh, would tackle everything really, which is also something that actually to get back to the the Bitcoin topic I would have to learn because so if you I don't know how familiar you are with the way things are done in Germany, but in Germany. Overall, I'm generalizing, but overall, everything's very structured and the way you are brought up is very structured and you plan ahead and everything is um, everything has its place. Everything has its rules and you have to have a plan for how you go about things that does not work if you go abroad and you travel and um, if you go and you you 
you go into Bitcoin, which is not favored by um, by by the by the monetary overlords, then that is also not well. That's also not the preferred way to go about it. So it's there is a process there that you kind of go against what against that structure, and you have to learn to trust yourself that you can figure things out, that you can find these paths for yourself, and that you can learn how to use these things. So how to learn how to make music, learn how to travel, learn how to, learn how to be fine on your own and learn how to self-custody your, your money. So this personal responsibility is, is a big deal that we are not necessarily taught, but that we need so badly. But that seems so scary that you would rather not try it and that you would rather trust someone else to know what's best for you, which is hardly ever the not hardly ever, but often it's not the case. A lot of people, especially in Bitcoin, they talk about freedom and they it's like a, a huge value to them. But it, I think when most people face true freedom, what they really are facing is true responsibility, true self-responsibility. And a lot of people shy away from that. A lot of people LARP, so to speak, about freedom, but they don't have the tools necessarily to deal with that freedom because everything becomes their choice their decision and they're not necessarily willing to face the consequences if they screw up and i think that's uh something that a lot of people should take consider a little bit more often yeah yeah and um, i do think it's one thing it's, yeah oh sorry yeah i was just gonna say i think it's important to add that you shouldn't be like happy go lucky and oh i'm just gonna do this and oh i lost my seed phrase or whatever and oh i'm just gonna yeah, go abroad right. and oops i needed a visa to go here like you should not be yeah. like that I feel like I'm kind of coming across that way. I do go with the flow, but I do make plans. So, for example, you can't run a company if you're not planning ahead. Like you right. can be very chill and um, kind of seeing where things take you in your personal life. But then you have to yeah. like, actually have a plan in your in your professional life. And you have to have a plan with your with your money. You have to invest the time, but you also have to trust the process a little bit. As an artist, uh, you know a lot of artists. They, there's the term the muse. Do you have a muse? Is Bitcoin your muse? I thought a muse is always like a like a woman in your life or something. I googled that the other day actually. Well, that's like, true. Well, is, is there a woman like, in your life that is yeah. your muse? Why did I Google that? That's so <laughs> <Yeah>. random. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, <laughs> um, um, a muse. I mean, so I. Speaking of people, obviously I have people in my life who just oddly inspire me at times through the most random things or just people I'm close to that inspire things, the people I can bounce ideas off of and then um, or sometimes just through a conversation something comes up or just the, the thing with creativity is it, it comes up so randomly. A place can trigger it, a person, a situation can trigger it, um, on, but just also your overall state of being can can trigger it right and of course bitcoin is in that sense a massive trigger of inspiration because it gives me so many things that i can tackle because at first glance it's just this 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 technology but it touches so many aspects of our existence <laughs> like it's uh it's it, it it touches economics obviously technology monetary uh, financial topics even though philosophy game theory um, then you know self uh, responsibility. Then the the social aspect of what do I do with my no coiner friends? And th there's so many things you can talk about that you know I actually 
I'm, I have almost 200 comics now and I still have lo loads of ideas. So. Um, part of you, when you travel all over the world, you it, come into contact with all these different cultures and all these different ways of doing things. Do you like to collect, so to speak, um, different aspects of cultures and values? And do you find something that, oh, like the way they do things in the Philippines or in Japan is, you know, that's something I want to adopt into my thinking, into my value system, into my life. Is that something you've gained oh, as yeah. you've traveled? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Like, you, I think you tend to, and you don't even have to be traveling to do that. You tend to try and take the best aspects of maybe the environments and the people you surround yourself with as you go through life, which is why people always say it's important who you surround yourself with, like be around people who make you better and like that, all that kind of motivational stuff. Right. But definitely. So for me, different cultures have in, influenced me a lot. I do notice, for example, um, so did I say that? But when I left Germany, I went to Japan. So I did a, a working holiday in Japan and I uh, that was that, that was kind of that was kind of heavy because I spoke some Japanese, but I was I went to this village north of Tokyo and I worked in a Hawaiian restaurant. I was flipping pancakes and the people did not speak English and I spoke broken Japanese. So that just threw me straight into that life. And I. And, and in Japan is a country where you can do so many things wrong from a societal perspective. So I learned a lot of things in a very short amount of time about um, a, a life that was completely different from what I was used to, because a life where it's very important to save face, where there is a lot of focus placed on how you behave yourself, um, and then also a difference between how you behave yourself as a woman versus as a man, um, and then sort, sort of politeness is a huge deal over there and I noticed until now that in certain say formal situations or when I'm around people um, that I have a lot of respect for then sometimes I will do uh, I will do this which is very Japanese because in, in, in Japan so this is a combination of two things where obviously it's the bowing so there's like depending on who you meet you you bow you bow deeper or not as deep or like it's there's a whole there's a whole thing around it. And the other thing is when somebody talks to you and you're listening to them, like normally you, you would listen, like you're quiet, right? But in Japan, that is actually considered kind of rude. And to signal to somebody that you're listening, you're gonna be doing, um, you're gonna be giving like affirming sounds all the time. So if you're talking to me, telling me something, then I'm gonna be like, ah, hi, hi, hi. So like that. So sometimes I don't do the sounds anymore, but I still do this sometimes. And then I think like, what, what, like, but it's kind of ingrained now, which I it's not like a deep um, cultural thing, but it's just something that's stuck. So it's an example of the things that I picked up. Um, what do you ever think that you will settle down in a singular place and and kind of? reduce the amount of travel you're doing or, or do you consider that you'll probably be a nomad for at least the indefinite future um yeah i don't i i mean honestly i don't know i don't think that is a lifestyle you can do your entire life and i think also priorities change so for me it is first it be, it was a necessity because i went around and was doing promotion and then now i'm going around um, for the little hodler and little hodler is at most conferences and then it makes sense for me to be there 
so that works perfectly with my the lifestyle I have anyway. And so I don't see any need to change it, especially because it's pretty much exactly in line with what I want to do. That being said, I don't know, you know, I could wake up tomorrow and say, oh, I want to settle in, uh, I don't know, somewhere. <laughs> That's the other question. Like, I'm very happy to settle. I just need to figure out where. Right. Um, so for now, I'd like to keep my options open um, but just because it works, you know, like and, and if it stops working, then I'll figure it out. Then it's kind of it is the going with the flow approach, I suppose. How many languages would you I mean, you're not fluent in millions of languages, but how many languages do you feel pretty comfortable with? Oh, well, I, well German, <laughs> English. Sure, yeah and uh, Japanese um, and that's pretty much it I mean I've had some French classes but I, mean, mm -hmm. I would hardly I had some Chinese classes but I also would hardly say I can speak that at all um, Japanese and had, Japanese and Chinese yeah. seem very difficult to learn for Western speakers think, is that yeah you would think that um, mm -hmm. but I actually found French more difficult because yeah as an example Japanese is very difficult the first two weeks because you sit down and they throw at you three alphabets with uh, like different uh, characters. Well, two, so, let's say three, yeah, different characters and the um, the actual kanji. What's it? The the actual it's called kanji. The actual like little characters, yeah. Which is I think they have two thousand of those, and then each alphabet has oh my god, 48, 48 letters oh. I think. So you have to learn those. You're not going to learn 2,000 characters in two weeks, obviously, but the alphabets. Um, so that is that is killer. But then you notice their grammar is extremely, uh, well, it's, it's simple. Because, for example, Japanese only has two tenses. So it has present tense and past tense. Um, there is no conjugating verbs or anything. There is no crazy uh, gendered speech like we have in German or like you have in French. So that makes it very easy. It's also a language that you can easily pronounce because everything is pronounced exactly the way you read it. And so people are very, well, not everywhere in Japan, but if you go to Tokyo, you'll be able to understand what people are saying quite easily. So the spoken Japanese, if you let, it, if you let out the, you know, learning the characters, actually not that hard to learn. But then comes a point where you learn the politeness forms and rules and then it just that is that is madness i, I was told even the japanese are struggling with that <laughs> um before we wrap we have like a a question that we like to ask a lot of our guests that uh is what you know as you've been in bitcoin for a while there's different aspects of it whether it's mining the difficulty adjustment the price is what people start with but at, over time that changes and people get more really passionate about specific aspects. Is there any aspect of Bitcoin or Bitcoin's future that has really piqued your interest or excited you recently? Um, I'm personally, because I'm not that proficient in like everything technological, which I know I should read more about, like I'm never comfortable with my technological understanding of Bitcoin, but sure. you know everybody has their focus, right? So my focus is very much on communicating Bitcoin to people and I've been very interested in the different ways that can be done the different ways people respond to it 
in different countries, in different at uh, different ages, different situations in, totally. their, in their life. So I really like that. So I kind of like the personal aspect of it. I like how you talk about it and then how you start using it. Mm-hmm. And I like to think back about the, to the first time I was looking at Bitcoin and I was reading the Wikipedia article and it just that you can't do that. Like you can't ask people to go and Google Bitcoin. No. Like that's just gonna kill any interest uh, before it even arises. So I like that. I like the idea of how do we get Bitcoin out there in a way that's not nerdy and too techy and make it in, cool, in a, make it fun. Yeah, exactly. So Useful. that I really like. And then I was sorry. Can I say two things? I have one more. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so I was in Nashville last week um, for oh, yes. the yeah. So the Human Rights Foundation had an event there uh, with at Bitcoin Park. I don't know if you've been. Not yet. Um, I really want to go there. I hear it's, it's great. It's cool. It's cool. I didn't know. So I, I I drove to Nashville from the airport and I was I drove past like two houses and it looked like a massive house party. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Like that's so American. Like part like a barbecue on the front porch or something. Um, and I came back and it turns out that was Bitcoin Park. It was these two buildings and people were hanging outside and just like having their having their lunch. Um, yeah, anyway, so there they actually made an effort to invite um, people from all over the world. And that included community managers and meetup organizers from the most remote parts of the world who are doing um, well, you're doing Bitcoin stuff in their region, like maybe in their community, in their village, on their little island. And a lot of them have circular economies there, which I find amazing. I feel like we're not talking about that enough. So we talked about agree. Bitcoin Beach, which those guys were there too, and they're awesome. But they have so many copycat projects now. Yes. That, that, that's awesome. And it's just working over there. And it's just slowly growing. It's really grassroots. And I love that stuff. Yeah, so how I think Bitcoin or hyper-Bitcoinization will start, it will, it will be these circular economies spreading all over the world. And that seems to be kind of what's going on. And um, so one of the things that I've, I've talked about on this podcast a few times is that Bitcoin is so siloed in people's minds. It's an abstract concept. It's something that we interact with on our screens, on our phones, on our uh, uh, computers. But having physical Bitcoin symbols and art and things in the, the, the meat world, so to speak, the physical space is so important because it kind of bridges that gap that Bitcoin is a real and lasting thing that will be here. And then when you see it, you see the signs, you see the plushies, like that's so important. So that's why I think it's so cool that you've got the um, the plushies and I want uh, the little hodler and I'm getting one for my four-year-old niece <laughs> for Christmas. Um, so that's gonna one. be, yeah. Um, so yeah, can yeah, you, I, can you, I, there we go. I think, <laughs> I think the interesting thing and that's something that I also had to tell myself at some point because it, it, and I think many artists have that feeling at some point that you feel like you're non-essential because like you're just an artist. Like technically, yeah, you can live without art. Like let's say you you run out of water, right? That's an immediate problem. You have to solve that immediately. You run out of art, it's like, yeah. Meh. But actually there is a there's a purpose to that and it, it fulfills a kind of need within us that we that that's kind of hard to grasp. It it builds bridges to a sort of understanding, a sort of communication of, of values, of ideas. And it is in that sense important for Bitcoin because it helps it helps communicate what we already know about Bitcoin, 
to new audiences and that I feel is not non-essential and I feel like artists in the space need to be aware of that. So you, um, I, I was just going to say, I know Dan has to hop off here pretty quick, but um, uh, Lena, can you just sort of t talk about uh, where to find you, your your work, what you're working on next and yeah. um, sort of the the end credits of, of we'll the show? But <laughs> yeah. We'll have it in the show notes, but let people know where they can go to get a little hodler as well. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you get the little hodlers on thelittlehodler.com. Um, and my socials are my name, which I'm going to spell it for you because it's German. <laughs> it's at Lena and then it's S-E-I-C-H-E, -E, which you pronounce Zeiche. But most people don't. So we just say Lena. Because it's very hard to pronounce. I was going to say the very American Midwest way, psych. Oh, yeah, I get that sometimes. Or I get Seach. 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 Seachy. Any interesting projects coming up? Yeah, but it's still secret. But I can say it's like I want to, I have some plans for something very physical. Physical little hodler stuff. Awesome. Real word, little hodler stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Thank you so much. That was yeah, awesome. I've never received those questions before. <laughs> Many of them are new. I loved it. Awesome. Cool. I'll cut it. Thanks again for listening to the High Hash Rate podcast. You can find us on Twitter at High Hash Rate, or you can hit up Dan at Heartland Bitcoin, H R T L N D Bitcoin, or myself, Mike at Run Dance Bitcoin. That's all one word, Run Dance Bitcoin. If you're a fellow pleb or you just want to shoot the shit with two high Bitcoiners, reach out to us. Holy Toledo!